Hello, survivalists. This is the Crux True Survival Stories, and I'm your host, Casey McIntosh, joined with my wonderful friend. Hi, Casey. Today, I'm going to be telling the story of Sydney Uomoto and David McMahon. It's a plane crash survival story. Sydney and David were two young pilots flying between Oahu and the Big Island on July 15, 2016, when the plane's engines went out, leaving them to crash in the ocean with minimal time before impact. The thoughts they had about their family and friends helped the young pilots through difficult 21 hours before they were finally rescued. Sydney was 23 and David was 26. Both worked for Mokalili Airlines. They were both young pilots, of course. Sydney was hoping to get some multi-engine hours under her belt as she flew home for her father's birthday. The pilot Sydney was planning on flying with backed out at the last minute, but fortunately, David was able to co-pilot. This was a flight without passengers. Thank goodness. At the time, Sydney didn't even know who David was. They'd never worked together, and they only met a few minutes before they jumped into the twin-engine Piper Apache. Speaking for the first time in the car on the way to the airport. It was a beautiful day when they departed Honolulu for Kona. In the beginning of the flight, everything was going fine. It was a normal day. Of course, it was beautiful. They were enjoying the flight. There was nothing to suggest that there was anything wrong with the plane until there was a little bit of rumbling shortly after 3 p.m. It wasn't enough for them to create enough concern that they would decide to turn around and go back. But Sydney did fly a little bit lower, and it seemed like the engine was flying a little smoother at about 3,000 meters. An hour after the engine rumbling, they were cruising, and they were about 25 miles off the coast, and their right engine failed. Sydney immediately got on the radio and called air traffic control, alerting them that they might be needing some help in the very near future. Shortly after the first engine, the second engine failed, and there was complete and utter silence in the air. Oh, that's terrifying. They're just free, free floating. floating in the yeah. air. You notice that no one ever has written a song called Free Floating because it's actually a terrifying thing. <laughs> no. There's nothing freeing about it at all. <laughs> they followed their training for a single engine fail initially. They obviously weren't expecting a second engine failure. They went through the entire emergency checklist, which included turning on the fuel pumps, pushing the throttles to full, which sometimes can restart the engine. In this event, that did not happen. Moments before crashing, David asked Sydney to take over the controls, and he was able to grab the life vest and open the door on his side, which is the only door in the plane. At that time, Sydney made another distress call, saying that they were 40 kilometers northwest of Kona and that they were going down. So my brother, who's a pilot, said that a college course, or his degree was in aerospace. Some professor told him that in a small plane, every minute of flying over the ocean is a day of swimming. Oh, wow. So that's a, that's a long, distance. long distance. Take that with a grain of salt. He said, you should probably verify that, which I never did. So... <laughs> Well, we should swim from Honolulu <laughs> to Kona and see how many days it takes. I think you, yeah, I think you'd be better suited for that type of experiment, Julie. <laughs> okay. I'm on it. David asked Sydney to land and imagine that the water was a runway because, of course, she was aptly nervous about it. 
So try not to go too directly into the water and, you know, standing out that last few hundred meters. The plane was gliding. And as they descended, the ocean, of course, became bigger and bigger and bigger. They were headed towards the water at about 70 miles an hour. And the plane only had lap belts. So obviously making survival without any injuries less likely. And right before impact, Sydney pulled back on the yoke to bring the plane's nose up a little bit to just help with the rate of sink or, you know, to slow down how fast they would go into the ocean. When the plane hit the water, there was this giant crash and then everything was white and the impact was astounding. It was like being rear-ended by a semi-truck. They both lurched forward violently in the cockpit and David saw that Sydney hit her face on the dash. She broke her nose and was bleeding all over the place. So they're both sitting there. They're dazed. They're just completely overwhelmed by what had happened. But they were conscious and relatively unharmed. They didn't have any significant bodily injuries. Right away, water began filling the cockpit. And within a couple of minutes, or not even minutes, probably seconds after they hit the water, of course, the doors open as well. Keep that in mind. But the plane's already halfway full of water. Sydney said, I remember hitting that water and the noise and seeing the water come up over the windshield. I was kind of in a daze for a little while, seeing the water come up over the cockpit, and I just kind of had to register what happened. And David was on the wing saying, come on, we got to get out. So Sydney was afraid and told David that she couldn't go into the water because she was bleeding profusely from her nose and she was worried about attracting sharks. But David was like, you cannot think about that right now. Now you have to get out of this airplane that's going down. David said, she grabbed the vest and the plane was going down pretty fast. And I was standing on the wing and she was right outside the door. And we just put the life vest on and jumped into the water. Within a couple of minutes, the plane was under the water. Initially, David felt some reassurance because they survived the crash, number one, which is surprising. And they had notified the Coast Guard right before they crashed. So he said, I knew they were coming, so I wasn't too afraid yet. I was just like, okay, we're going to float here. We just kept talking to keep our nerves down, you know. I was like, they're going to come find us, you know. We just survived a plane crash. That's the worst of it. We'll just wait for the Coast Guard to come. And then it took longer than expected. They just hung out there near the wreckage. And they floated there, waiting for the Coast Guard. The crash occurred around 3.15 p.m. And within a couple hours, there were helicopters circling above them. But unfortunately, by that time, the water was really rough and there were six foot tall white caps and the sun was glaring. And so there was basically no visualization. You know, the only thing visible from the water anyway is their head and maybe part of a life vest. So, so the helicopters no. couldn't see them. And after about the sixth or seventh time they experienced that, uh, they were feeling pretty heartbroken. And David was trying really, really hard, waving his arms, trying to get the attention of the helicopter. Sydney said, it's definitely a little heartbreaking. I would see David trying so hard to get their attention and I would just wave my hands and you would see them fly right over. And then you would kind of follow them thinking, oh, if they did see us, they'll turn. That's the indication that they did see us. But then you see them still go straight ahead towards Maui and it's like they didn't see us. And it was definitely disappointing, kind of heartbreaking. And to just do it over and over, you see it coming, you get excited, you get hopeful. And then you see them go away and you see them not turn around. And it's just as quickly as you came up, it just goes right back down. So obviously not really an upbeat moment at that point. Yeah, probably losing hope. 
As there is swimming around, David realizes that his life vest, something is wrong with it. And the CHU cartridge fell out on one of the sides of the life vest. Now there's a hole in it and the whole thing deflates. He's got no life vest. This is the moment when they decided they could not stay there any longer. It was literally sink or swim. So because they'd only had so much time and the sun at that point was starting to go down. Despite their distance from the coast, which was about 25 miles, they were able to see the volcanoes of the Big Island, which are about 14,000 feet. There were waves and they were swimming against a current. So have to keep that in mind, too. But he was more comfortable with water and swimming than Sydney was. And it's really fortunate that her life vest wasn't the one that malfunctioned. Sydney also noticed that her vest was losing air, but she was able to blow into it and kind of keep it filled. David had been on the swim team and he was a surfer. So thankfully, again, and he's young. So all of those things in combination were helpful. They could just see the outline of the mountain because it was getting dark. But there were lights, of course, on the island. So that kind of was their beacon of hope, if you will. Their main focus at that time was just keeping each other positive and keep moving toward the island. And David kept Sydney calm by talking to her, just small talk about how they did in the plane, asking her questions about her family. And they were just chatting back and forth, just getting to know one another and distract each other. After eight hours of backstrokes, floating, and regular swimming, David was becoming completely exhausted. He knew that if they didn't figure something out quickly, he was going to drown. Luckily, with the help of Sydney, they were able to inflate one side of his life vest. I'm not really sure how that worked, but that was a little bit of hope for him. The sun went down completely, and the temperature started to drop a little bit, mm. and they became really cold. Yeah. And despite the fact that they're in the ocean and it's dark, they both felt this feeling of peace and calm. David kept telling Sydney that he was exhausted and cold and he couldn't go any further. And so they would rest for a few minutes and then she would continue to encourage him to swim, telling him, like, we cannot stop. We have to keep going. And again, who was the strong one in the beginning. And now the tables have turned and she's the one that's emotionally continuing to help him. At one point, David was completely unable to swim. His muscles were completely fatigued and he was having abdominal cramping and whatnot. So Sydney let Dave hold on to her feet and she was on her stomach or on her back and she was just swimming with her arms and he was just floating behind her and she was doing all of the work for over an hour. They didn't want to go back out into sea. You know, if they're not swimming at a certain rate, they're going to just be pushed out back into the ocean. And so that was Sydney's main goal. Don't, don't lose all the ground that you've already made. That makes sense. They probably want to try and at least stay where they could be found the next at this point. They, they pretty much had given up hope that the Coast Guard was going to come and get them. And they just were expecting we're having to do this ourselves. Like we are rescuing ourselves right now, which is in some ways probably good. I'm not sure, but they were determined. Well, they do say that's a personality trait of survivors as they take steps and measures to save themselves versus waiting for somebody to come save Being them. able to see the island certainly was helpful because there's a reminder of hope constantly. If you're just swimming out in the open ocean and you have no idea, even if you knew what direction land 
is, you have no way of knowing until you can actually see it that you're getting closer. So I would imagine, at least for myself, if I was in this scenario, I think that that would help me knowing I can see it getting closer. Mm -hmm. I feel like baby steps. So after this break where David wasn't having to do a lot of the swimming, I mean, he kicked a little bit as they were going along, but he didn't really have a lot to add. Then he was able to swim a little bit better by himself. During this time, like through the night and into the next day as they're swimming, they were feeling just waves of what they thought were prayers or thoughts from their family members or loved ones that sort of motivated them to keep going. Although at this point, Sydney had a little bit more energy and probably felt more hopeful than David did, she had her strength seriously tested because as she was swimming through the current, willing herself towards the shore, she swam right into a giant Portuguese man-of-war jellyfish. Yes. Oh, no. And she sustained multiple stings on her arm. She was trying to pull it off, but it was stuck all over her, like, spider webs. Ooh, gosh, that's where <laughs> I would give up, right there. That's hardcore, right? That is, yeah. I can't imagine. Oh, it had to be so horrible. I guess the only saving grace is that your whole body is cold, and so maybe you don't feel it as much. I don't know. Yeah, I don't either. That might be one benefit of being <laughs> hey. hypothermic at that point. When this whole battle with the jellyfish is over, rolled onto her back in pain, and she's breathing heavily. And for a while, she wasn't even responsive. She just was basically flailing there. And after a little while, she said to David, we got to get out of here. So I was doing some reading for an article on earth.com just because I was curious that it stated that jellyfish actually kill more people than sharks, sea snakes, and stingrays combined because of some evolved toxin gene. Did not know that. Not that you want to run into any jellyfish, but these are the ones to avoid. Box jellyfish, upside down jellyfish, or stocked jellyfish. Mm. I guess box jellyfish are among the most venomous animals on the planet. I've heard that before. I remember when I was in Australia, there were a lot of public service signs and information about yeah. box jellyfish. So how do you avoid them? What do you do? do? Just stay with water. It's something to do with, something to do with mm. vinegar, which I think is where the, the pee okay. on it theory comes from. Is that a good thing to do? Yeah, I don't know that it is. I think it's one of those things that won't uh, hurt. And it might help, but it also might not help. Sydney was grateful that she didn't come head on with a shark, but that type of encounter was not far off. So as they slowly made their way towards shore, they noticed that they were being followed. Okay, at first, they noticed some black fish behind them. And then the black fish went away. And then they noticed a shark swimming six to ten feet below them. There was the shadow. Mm. David wow. immediately knew he was looking at the shark. And he didn't say anything, but he just looked at Sydney. And she was like, oh, I know. I know what you saw. I know what it is. So, Casey, if you had, if you had to choose man of war or shark... Which one would you? I think you I think it has encounter? to be the man of war because at least you have a fighting chance maybe in that instance. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like, if you get a shark bite, right. Like, if you get a shark bite, you know, that, then you just bleed into the water and attract more sharks at that point. I guess if it was a box jellyfish versus the shark, you, I suppose, have to take the shark because apparently you die in five minutes if you're stung by one of those ones. So what about you? What are your thoughts about that? Yeah. Yeah, I'd go man of war, man of war all the way. All the way. <laughs> That's good to know. I'm learning so many new things about you, Julie. 
<laughs> so, you know, of course they're freaking out, but Sydney was freaking out more than David was in this moment. And David was like, hey, look, don't make a bunch of splashes. Don't go crazy. Just be calm and pretend it's not there. Just keep swimming towards the shore. So that's essentially what they did. They just kept their eyes on their direction that they were going and ignored the shark. And eventually it left them alone. Sydney was asking David what he was going to do if the shark came up and swam up to them. And he said that he was going to lick the shark and the shark's out. Send a strong message using body language. And Sydney was like, okay, I don't know what that does, but whatever. Okay, David, you look him in the eye, I'm going to keep swimming. I thought that was funny. Amazing. That's the first, the first good thing <laughs> that I've heard in this story. Actually, it's the second good thing. I'm impressed with how, how they really, seems like they set themselves up for success in the way that they crashed the plane. The fact that they even survived and got out of the plane before it flooded and kind of made it to the floating with life jackets. The other Pretty part impressive. I think that's impressive is that they basically took turns propping themselves up or propping each other up. You know, first David was the one that was really supporting Sydney and trying to keep her positive. And then when he was completely exhausted, she was doing that for him. So I don't know, you know, if, if you had one person in this cup ring that was basically giving up right away, the two of them may not have survived at all, you know? So... Yeah, it's kind of like they saved each other. They helped each other. Yeah. That was a good combination. As they keep going on, the sun set and rose, and they keep swimming towards the big island, and they start to make plans for the future. Like, we're, yeah, oh, we're going to be idea. at the beach by noon. We're going to get some lunch, and we're going to drink some water, and we're going to talk to our families. But by 11 o'clock in the morning, they extended their plan because they weren't there by lunch. They knew they weren't going to be there by lunchtime. So they said, OK, we're going to have dinner. They made an, a joint decision that they weren't going to spend another night out there on the water. On Friday morning, a New Zealand Air Force P-3 plane saw the debris near Kona. And then later, a tour helicopter saw the wreckage nine miles away from the Kona airport. And the Coast Guard responded to those calls by sending out some helicopters. At 11.30 is when David and Sydney first noticed the helicopters flying overhead. And at that point, David and Sydney took their life vests off and they started floating on top of them, sort of like boogie boards, because they thought that way they're, more of their bodies would be visible. Yeah, I was thinking, what color are their life vests? Because if they're orange, I feel like that's, I would want to like wave the vest yeah. as hard as I could. But that's a good idea too. At this point, they were still convinced that they had to save themselves. They thought, they're not going to see us. They're not going to find us. We have to keep just swimming towards shore. 21 hours after the crash, the Coast Guard finally identified them in the water. Yay. At the yeah. same time, David said to Sydney, this is it, Sid. This is the one God sent for us. And Sydney just looked up and saw the helicopter. And she was like, whatever, Dave. I'm just going to keep swimming. Whatever. You can think that, but I'm not going to get my hopes up. But then she saw this little speck get closer and closer and closer, and she realized that they'd actually been spotted. David had some gut feeling about that helicopter when he saw it, that that was the one that was going to come pull him out, pluck him out of the water. At this point, they were just elated. They were like crying and hugging each other. It was like the biggest party that ever happened for them. But when the diver came yeah. down, he just said, you know how happy I am to see you guys. I saw you in the paper this morning. Wow. Yeah, right? That's amazing. At the time of the rescue, they were about five miles away from shore, and they expected to rescue themselves by sunset. 
at the latest. Yeah. yeah. And I bet they would have. I bet. I wonder if part of them was like, oh, we were so close. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, you're so exhausted that, you know, getting pulled out of the water. That's a long way to swim. Sydney and David were really surprised by the efforts that everyone put in to find them. And they felt so much love and gratitude upon rescue. And they just felt so blessed that they survived and felt like it was a miracle and maybe related to all of the thoughts and prayers that they got when they were out on the water. After the rescue, the um, rescuers fed the survivor sandwiches and they treated Sydney's jellyfish wounds and broken nose, but she was able to call her father and wish him a happy birthday, which is probably the best birthday gift he ever received, I would have to imagine. Oh, yeah, I'm sure he was overjoyed. Oh, Sydney and David remained close friends after this incident. I didn't see a lot of news articles about, you know, are they still pilots? What are they doing now? But anyway, I just thought that that was a really great story all around, just like how level-headed they were when they were crashing and just the way that they maintain their composure pretty much the entire time. It's shocking. Yeah, so level-headed. It makes me wonder if maybe it's because they didn't know each other that well. Like, imagine if they were, you know, a brother and sister or a couple or somebody that would be more prone to fighting or showing their true colors. You know, your spouse or your close friends, they already know your weaknesses. Or maybe you assume they know your weaknesses. Whereas a stranger, you're basically starting out fresh and they don't know anything about you. Yeah, they just wanted to wanted to do right by each other and, you know, be there for the other one, the way that that person had been there for them. It's a, it's a nice a dynamic. How do you think um, you would celebrate getting pulled out of the water after this 21-hour ordeal? Well, all I can think is how thirsty oh. I would be. I would just want to drink so much water. And I feel like if I had access to unlimited amounts of water, What's I would that? be the happiest person. Because the whole time, time you're telling that story, I'm just thinking about how thirsty it must be with all that exertion. Right. Are you everywhere. thirsty right now just thinking about it? Because I am. Yeah. I'm thirsty <laughs> just thinking about it. Oh, that's funny. Well, anyway, I thought that was a fun story and I'm glad that you enjoyed it. That was a good one. Hey, everybody. I just wanted to say thanks so much for listening today and for supporting the Crux Podcast. Also, I wanted to say have a wonderful and happy 4th of July, and I hope everyone stays safe. I just wanted to say I appreciate anyone who reaches out to us through social media at our Instagram account, which is The Crux Podcast. Also, you can email us at thecruxsurvival at gmail.com. And we just appreciate any feedback or any requests for stories that you have specifically. And if you've been listening and enjoying the podcast, we would love it if you would share with a friend or write a nice review just so we can expand and get into more ears. So hope you have a wonderful rest of your day and take care.